All right, we are live, ladies and gentlemen. It appears more and more that we are venturing into a new era of COVID restrictions. President Biden stated his intentions to seek additional funding to develop a new COVID vaccine. Fauci was recently on CNN promoting masking up again. And more schools and venues are imposing COVID mandates. Also, there are signs the government is willing to use new tools and strategies to enforce harsher COVID lockdowns. We're going to be talking about this and more in episode 414 of the In the Tank podcast. Thank you, thank you. Welcome to the In the Tank podcast. As always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall. Joining me today, I've got Jim Likely, VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today? Good, sir. I'm doing just great. Um, I'm getting ready. I'm uh, working from remote home today because uh, tomorrow's going to be a very busy day because tomorrow is benefit benefit dinner day uh, for us for the Heartland Institute here in Chicago with John Stossel. If you have not gotten your tickets yet, it's probably too late. We've already set the tables <laughs> and, and the meals. It's actually not too late. If you if you go to heartland.org right now and you see the and you see the link uh, to the benefit dinner, if you were to buy tickets today, you might still be able to make it, but it's going to be fantastic. And um, if you do miss it, we are going to be recording it and uh, we would expect to put John Stossel's fantastic keynote address up for everyone to watch on our YouTube channel later. Yeah. Or if you just show up, I'll sneak you in through the back door. So just be there. Um, and I make didn't sure hear to... that. <laughs> also joining us, we have Chris Talgo, editorial director here at the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? Well, I've actually got a question for you, Donnie, and oh. you, Jim. Did you guys coordinate your cool-looking rose-colored uh, Henleys? I mean, kind of feel left out of the uh, the cool club here. Uh, yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, it's kind of awkward because you're not on our uh, on Sorry. our mailing list. Sorry so yeah, that. you yeah. weren't you weren't included on that. If Andy were to show himself, you could see that he's wearing the same outfit. It's actually a <laughs> uniform that we're starting here at the Harlem Institute. Cool. Uh, so before we get going, I'll definitely not be wearing that uniform ever, <laughs> but whatever. Before we get individualistic. Yeah, of course. Before we get going, I have to put out that message to audio-only listeners that are catching this show on a, probably a Friday or later that uh, you can join us a day <laughs> earlier if you tune in live on YouTube or Rumble or Facebook or Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, where we are streaming live every Thursday at noon Central Time. You can join the conversation, throw your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comment on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. If you are a listener, though, leaving us a review on iTunes would be greatly appreciated. If you are a watcher, hitting that subscribe button, sharing this content, uh, leaving a comment under the video, all of those things would be greatly appreciated. Helps break through those big tech algorithms, prevent content like this from being shown to more people. And um, also we have Super Chat. That's the other thing. Super Chat functionality enabled. So if you want to guarantee your comment or question is read and support the show that way, 
that's a great way to to go about doing that. Jim already mentioned benefit dinner tomorrow, so climate change roundtable is not happening. I know that there's a lot of you that uh, tune into that. I'm not sure if there's a plan on putting some other video. Andy, you can nod. There is. Okay. They're probably going to put some other video up in place of the traditional crew that helms that show. Um, And then also those other people that uh, are cool enough to attend the benefit dinner will be with us in Chicagoland area. So we got a lot to talk about. I've got like eight pages of notes, which is (laughs) abnormal for a show like this. And that's because we've got a couple of opening chit chat segments that I wanted to get to. Uh, The first one is based off of something that Jim and I were discussing yesterday, and uh, it's it's pretty interesting. But Patrick T. Brown, who is a climate scientist who has written about a number of climate change issues, came out recently and revealed the distortions that come from prestigious academic journals in order to push a climate change narrative. So recently he wrote a piece in the Free Press where in it, he wrote, the paper I just published, Climate Warming Increases Extreme Daily Wildfire Growth Risk in California, focused exclusively on how climate change has affected extreme wildfire behavior. I knew not to try to quantify key aspects other than climate change in my research because it would dilute the story that prestigious journals like Nature and its rival Science want to tell. This matters because it is critically important for scientists to be published in high-profile journals. In many ways, they are gatekeepers for career success in academia. And the editors of these journals have made it abundantly clear, both in what they publish and what they reject, that they want climate papers that support certain pre-approved narratives, even when those narratives come at the expense of broader knowledge for society. So, Jim, I mean, that is pretty pretty damning <laughs> what what do you have to say about this well yeah so this is uh, I have, i'm kind of conflicted on it actually and uh patrick t brown i actually follow him on twitter and he had a long twitter thread about this um you know where he basically where he says he tells on himself and frankly the entire professional um climate alarmist industry which dominates academia uh, but you know he he told the story about how um, he had first, he had written a paper that didn't focus blame on climate change and by, for, for whatever, whatever you're observing in nature. Um, And, you know, when they blame climate change, what they really mean, of course, is human activity causing and driving climate change. So we have to um, restrict our freedoms and, you know, rearrange our entire society because of climate change, because humans are causing climate change. He talked about how when he was a young scientist, he had written a paper that uh, was honest and looked at the data objectively, and it weighed the effect of climate change on a, on, on a particular natural phenomena, but it really wasn't the driving factor, and he wrote it honestly. And he said that he didn't even get, uh, not only was it not published, uh, not only did it not even get to peer review in the academic journal, the editors rejected it out of hand. So then he, you know, so then he discovered that I have to blame human activity for all of natural all the natural calamities you can think of to even have it considered and published somewhere. Uh, And in this particular case, um, he was writing a paper on wildfires and the causes, um, uh, you know, why, you know, just wildfires, Right. And he says, you know, climate change is a factor, but it is dwarfed 
by other factors, such as um, probably the number one is bad forest management. Uh, you know, we not, we're not logging as much as we used to because of environmental concerns. And so there's all this brush that will be there and that will catch fire and that makes it worse. And climate change wasn't, um, wasn't number one, but he still said so. Why? Because he wanted to get it published. And um, he, so I guess now he just feels a little guilty about it. And, you know, I, I think it's really great that he has come out publicly and said that this is how the academic journal, uh, when it comes to climate, this is how the academic journal world works. We here at the Heartland Institute, we've known this for a very long time. The scientists that we work with have been telling us these stories for literally decades. Um, the late, great Pat Michaels gave a keynote address oh, about four or five uh, Heartland Climate Conferences ago, where he focused on this very thing. And he was very concerned that um, while you, you, he was concerned because you have to be basically an older, almost retired, tenure-level um, professor in order to tell the truth about the climate. Because if you go against the narrative, your, your career, you won't have a career. Or if you had a career established, um, you will have your career ruined. And so this is first-person account proof that a young scientist, if he wants to follow the data, if he wants to tell people the truth about what's happening to the planet, he, will, he has no incentive to do so. In fact, it's all disincentives because if he tells the truth, he will never have a career. He will never have a, a tenure track professor, um, you know, professor career at any university. And look, we all want to have job security. We all want to advance our careers. And so th this is the truth is that the entire system is set up to lie to us about what is really happening to the planet. Um, and I guess, you know, I was joking. It's like, um, you know, again, we want we want we want Patrick to be on. Uh, we want Patrick T. Brown to be on Climate Change Roundtable. Um, perhaps not this Friday, but maybe the, the Friday after. We are reaching out to him. But you know, it reminded me of Henry Hill from Goodfellas. You know, this is a guy. Um, he's he's almost like a, the climate mafia informant. Um, I'm glad that he's telling the truth. Um, it doesn't wipe away all the sins of basically um, um, academic. I don't we'll say fraud, academic fraud, because if you if your conclusions, if, if your data shows X, but you say Y in order to advance an agenda or even to get published, that's not honest science. That's not honest academic research. That is fake. It is a lie. And so, you know, I'm glad that he is informing on, you know, really the climate alarmist mafia out there in academia. Um, and, you know, maybe this is. I always say this, you know, hoping it's true. I've not seen any evidence that this would be true, but perhaps this is such a significant admission that it starts to, um, you know, put a crack in the wall of lies that we've been staring at when it comes to climate for the last two decades. Yeah, well, we can keep our fingers crossed on that. Uh, Chris, what, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, this is supposed to be academic journals here. This isn't supposed to be, you know, a tabloid where the editor says, oh, yeah, you know, this is good, but make it more salacious. I want juicier details on on what Paris Hilton's doing. Like, like this is crazy. A couple of things come to my mind. One of them being uh, when you opened up your most recent book, you talked about the military industrial complex, but you also went deeper into that speech and how Eisenhower warned about the scientific industrial complex. And I think this is kind of, you know, that coming to fruition. Mm. Uh, so I've, I'm kind of up to minds in terms of this, you know, this gentleman in his article, because on one hand, he did succumb to the mob and he put, you know, the he he 
made the article seem as if climate change was the you know main factor, but then you know, kind of I think cowardly after the fact, after he gets all the recognition in the you know in the scientific journal, then he comes out and says, oh by the way, I kind of like fudge these numbers and I kind of lied about that stuff, and here's why I think this matters because we're going to talk about this. Maybe a couple other other outlets will cover this, but the vast majority of the mainstream media are not going to cover this. So this is just yet another scientific paper that's supposedly going to reinforce the dominant narrative that everything is, you know, everything that's related to climate change is caused by, you know, humans and, uh, you know, carbon dioxide emissions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, I kind of, you know, in one, in, in one way, I'm like congratulating him. I'm like glad that he's doing this, but then he's also, you know, he's kind of, he's playing both sides. He's kind of sitting right on the fence. He's saying, I still want to get that special recognition from my friends in academia and go to the, you know, to the cool parties and be one of them. But after the fact, I'm then going to, you know, say, hey, by the way, I kind of like, you know, you know, lied about this and that. But the mainstream media is not going to pick that up. So, right. you know, I think it's it's, you know, kind of a hollow uh, victory in ways. Well, you know, we were kicking this around uh, on Heartland's uh, Slack channels uh, this week. And Sterling Burnett, the head of our uh, climate, our Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy, um, you know, he had he had said he had noted that. Um, uh, Patrick uh, Brown had written in the Free Press article, quote, although climate change is a factor in California wildfires, evidence suggests that other factors, which we couldn't talk about in the Nature paper and get published, may be playing an even greater role. And Sterling said, this is like a witness taking the stand and only keeping the first part of the oath, which is to tell the truth and omitting by misleading by omission, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So when you when you leave out the <clears throat> fact that uh, Climate change is maybe ranked third or fourth on on the reasons for uh, wildfires in in the state of California. That's not actually telling the truth at all. Um, it's by leaving that out. Th these lies of omission uh, are what have gotten us to this place. And you know, I've long said, and and I'm really proud of the work the Heartland Institute does, supporting the work of scientists who look at the data and come to the correct conclusions, at least in their minds, because the data does not show that humans are causing a climate crisis. And I've long thought, and I think this is, this is actually a more, more evidence that this is true. If you're able to kick the legs out under the alarmist science that has been dominating academia and, and, and published journals, if you're able to do that, the entire edifice of climate change control, government control to, to stop climate change, collapses completely. That's why um, they have to lie to us and to the media who are just complicit in this sort of, in the lies. Um, you know, so that's why they have, that's why only lies can get into these peer review journals as a lot of the scientists we work with call it. It's not peer review, it's pal review. Mm -hmm. And only members of, only your pals in the club get to be published. Yeah, you know, I, I want, uh, um, I, I kind of wish that Climate Change Roundtable was happening tomorrow because I would love to hear Sterling and, and Anthony talk about this because, like, I know Sterling has talked in previous episodes about the shortcomings of the peer review process, and I can't parrot the, the things that he would have to say off the top of my head, but I remember thinking, like, wow, that's that's pretty damning. Like, you know, like, these people just, like, Oh yeah, it looks good. It moves it on. They don't actually like check it or make sure the science lines up or anything. It's just like, all right, rubber stamp, sounds good, and move on. And then also, do you remember um 
and this kind of goes to the Chris's point, like, you know, hopefully this doesn't just disappear in the next news cycle. And we all forget about this because you remember like five years ago, there was like a handful of people that came out um, that, that, that showed that they were just making up fake studies about like, you know, they're just using as much academic jargon and coming up with ridiculous topics for studies that was like, rape culture observed in dog parks or something like that and they would just they would just pretty it up with academic sounding uh, uh verbiage and then put it out there and it would get published and they got like 20 completely bogus papers published in respected peer-reviewed publications and they showed like that this is an indictment of the peer review process and that no one actually looked at this stuff they just thought it looked good it had some key buzzwords in it and they published it and that happened like five years ago. And was there any fallout from that? Like, well, I think it was just like a little pie in the face or egg on the face for like a week. And then we all moved on. And I'm hoping that this doesn't kind of fall in that same kind of category of just like, well, oh, yeah, we forgot about it. Well, I've got another apt comparison. Uh, I'm old enough to remember uh, Climate Gate and how that was, you know, brushed under the rug by the mainstream media, even though we know for a fact that. You know, these climates, these so-called climate scientists were getting together and, uh, you know, just making up, you know, data. And, you know, I mean, I thought I thought that would have blown the lid on the entire climate change, you know, charade. But fortunately, here we are 20 something years later and they're still at it. And, you know, they're still, you know, making hand over fist, you know, and it's it's sad. The peer review process is the most secure and free system ever. Right. We just have to repeat that over and over again. Um, all right, well, let's move on to our main topic. I had another thing that I wanted to bring up, but for sake of time, let's let's just get to the COVID stuff. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, we talked about a few stories relating to COVID restrictions creeping back up into a number of places in America, some colleges, some certain businesses. Well, this trend looks like it's continuing. More places are bringing back masks. I have one story in the show notes where Maryland public elementary schools are reinstating COVID mask requirements, ordering some students to wear N95 masks while in the buildings. Looks like New York is gearing up to do the same. There's a smattering of other schools around the country that are doing likewise. And this is all happening because of a new strain we discussed on the show a couple of weeks ago, variant BA 2.48. Check my work on that because that's just off the top of my head. Um, but uh, so this one, you know, might be more severe, might not be. The jury is still out on that. However, it is resulting in an uptick of cases so i think we have a chart somewhere here uh, uh showing the the uptick in hospitalizations as it uh, relates to covid can we show that chart there andy and then go go ahead and zoom in a little bit because i'm not sure people can see the the uptick just keep zooming in can we can we zoom in even further because i don't think we can see the uptick yet <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very small just trust me it's there there we go slide it over there it is you see it we might have to zoom in a little bit further if possible there is an uptick just trust me everyone there's an uptick there hey Donny, Donny, I, I hate to interrupt i'm sorry but just keep in mind for our our viewers and listeners that when we're talking about covid hospitalizations we are not talking about people that are hospitalized because of covid we are talking about people that are hospitalized with covid so that means that if you broke your arm and you go into the hospital because you have to get a test and you test positive for COVID, you're counted as a COVID hospitalization. If you're in a car accident and you go to the hospital and you've got you know a broken leg, whatever, and you happen to have COVID, you are counted as a COVID-19 hospitalization. So that is a very, very important 
thing that we need to make sure that the viewers and listeners understand, because these are not people who are in the hospital strictly due to COVID. They are right. in the hospital and they happen to have COVID. Fair point. Fair point. Um, so all of this is uh, is kind of bringing back the whole mask debate, which is you know, stirring up all of the kind of political winds that surround the the idea of bringing back masks, mask mandates, the effectiveness of masks. We're having this conversation again. Um, and lately, Dr. Anthony Fauci was on CNN, where credit to CNN, he was presented with facts about a report stating very clearly that masks did nothing to reduce the spread of COVID. We have a video of this this exchange, so let's uh, go ahead and play that clip labeled Fauci Masks, please. Uh, Brett Stevens in The Times talked about Cochrane. Put that on the screen. The most rigorous and comprehensive analysis of scientific studies conducted on the efficacy of masks for reducing the spread of respiratory illness, including COVID-19, was published last month. Its conclusions, said Tom Jefferson, the Oxford epidemiologist who is the lead author, were unambiguous. There is just no evidence that they, masks, make any difference, he told the journalist Mayanne Damasi, full stop. But wait, hold on, what about the N95 masks as opposed to the lower quality? Surgical or cloth masks makes no difference, none of it, he said. Well, what about the studies that initially persuaded policymakers to impose mask mandates? They were convinced by non-randomized studies, flawed observational studies. How do we get beyond that finding of that particular review? Yeah, but there are other studies, Michael, oh. that show at an individual level for individual. Mm. When you're talking about the effect on the epidemic or the pandemic as a whole, the data are less strong. Yeah. Uh, did you see the CNN guy's like eyes just like, how are you saying this? <laughs> like, I just told you, concrete like uh, studies show it's all BS. And your response is, well, there's some other studies. Like, give me a break. And I wondered this last time, Jim, when we talked about COVID. It's like, are we as a society, or at least our, you know, policy leaders, whatever, political leaders, like, did they learn anything from the last time around? Are we doomed to do all of the same thing again, regardless of how pointless and ineffective and potentially so uh, socially detrimental like these practices were? Are we doomed for that? Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I think the reason is that the uh, the people... The people in our government, our authorities, our ruling class, were wrong about nearly every single aspect of COVID, from <laughs> detection to policy to um, to getting shots. I mean, this 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 video is going to be demonetized and maybe even banned. <laughs> I'm also just say vaccines. I'm also say COVID. Uh, you know, we had two weeks ago. The title of our podcast was COVID: The Election Variant. <laughs> so you know, let's just go ahead and get the get the channel uh, in big trouble. Uh, but they were never held accountable. There was no penalty for being completely 100% wrong about nearly everything when it comes to COVID. And now, you know, what do you know? There's an election coming again. And suddenly um, we're talking about an uptick, a supposed uptick in COVID cases, which as we saw from the chart we just put on the screen, it is so small you need a magnifying glass to see it. That it's not like a year ago. We're lower than we were a year ago at this time. And there was no talk about any of this stuff. But suddenly we're going to bring masks back. And it's because these, these power-mad, um, way too powerful bureaucrats. Did you know that Anthony Fauci is not in that position anymore? He's now retired, pulling down the largest government pension of anybody who's ever lived, even more than presidents do. 
Um, so he's retired. He's pulling that down. Plus all the money he's going to be making from big pharma on the side that he hasn't already, you know, if he hasn't already made it when he was in office, that happened to no accountability, um, no response. Nobody takes any responsibility. So they actually think they can come forward again after they've completely destroyed the credibility of public health experts in government and that they can tell people to wear masks again. And it's, it's, you know, ga the gaslighting is almost too much to take. Because they will say, Fauci will say to this day that he didn't, uh, he didn't uh, want anybody to shut anything down, that he wasn't mandating masks. These were just suggestions, putting aside the fact that the entire, um, they scared everybody so much about COVID that the entire world did what they were told by the experts who didn't know what they were doing. If you gave them the benefit of the doubt, they just didn't know what they were doing. They were trying to do the best they can. They weren't doing any of that, actually. You can't give them the benefit of the doubt. They were purposely pushing lies in order to control you to basically change all the election laws on the fly to benefit a particular political party. That was a huge bonus, all to get Trump out of the White House. And so if they think they're going to now just kind of soft pedal this, this whole thing about wearing masks again, I, we talked about this on the pod two weeks ago. Um, it may be, you may have to make some sacrifices, but you cannot, you cannot comply. If, if the FAA, and this is what's really being hinted at now, that the federal government is going to require masks again when you fly on airplanes, I guess you're going to have to cancel all your vacation plans. I guess you're going to have to do your business trip that you were going to do uh, and do that on Zoom instead. Do whatever it takes to not comply with this. If there was a restaurant, and th this is amazing that this was happening too, restaurants would not let you inside unless you were wearing a mask. Never visit that restaurant again. It should be out of business. You should remember the ones actually that did that. And not and not um, and not buy any food from them anymore. Um, I am not going to walk um, up and down a grocery store one aisle at a time and stay stay on my sticker six feet away from somebody. If any if any store puts that crap up again, I'm never going to patronize that place again. This cannot be allowed to happen again because it is one unscientific and it is humiliating. The purpose of making you put a piece of cloth on your face that science shows does nothing to stop the spread of COVID-19, um, to put that on is to, is to, is to be a, a serf, a subject of your government and not a free person. I will not put a mask on again. Anywhere, any activity that requires me to wear one, that activity in place is out of my life forever. That's it. That's the only way this can be stopped. And that includes scuba diving. Those are the thoughts and feelings and opinions of Jim Lakely, not necessarily reflective of social stopping socialism TV. Just an FYI, uh, you know, YouTube censors. Chris, your your thoughts on this? I have a feeling that um, when Fauci inevitably writes his first book, the cover is just going to be a big full length picture of him, and it's just going to be titled the man that single-handedly saved the world. The guy is an egomaniac. What are, what are your thoughts on all of this? I'm going to go back to the very beginning of the pandemic. And um, I firmly believe, and I think the evidence really shows that Dr. Fauci and his grotesque uh, you know, lab uh, in Wuhan, China, that he was supplying millions of dollars, you know, to, from the U S government and through uh, and, you know, non-government organizations uh, is the reason why COVID, you know, occurred in the first place. And I am sticking to that. Him and his, you know, crazy, we need to make a 
uh, you know, genetically modified virus so that we can then, you know, understand it, but it doesn't exist in nature. So I hold him accountable and responsible for the entire pandemic in the first place. I think he got away with this. I was pretty happy when Rand Paul was grilling him, you know, uh, in front of the U.S. Senate committee. And I think Dr. Fauci lied under oath. So I'm, I'm still on that. And I will not get off that, you know, that mission because I think that somehow, some way, Dr. Fauci, through his lies and through, you know, we have the emails to show that he was lying through his teeth in the first couple of days of the pandemic, trying to take the spotlight away from the fact that him and his, you know, him and his uh, colleagues were the ones who brought this to the world in the first place. So I, I'm still hoping somehow that he is held accountable for this because he is the reason why we suffered through that pandemic. And I don't care if we get banned. Sorry. The, the thoughts and opinions of Chris Talgo, everybody. Yeah. Not necessarily yeah. reflective of. Yeah, but reflective uh, of the evidence, reflective of data, reflective of common sense. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm, I'm still shocked that some people are still buying this bogus you know, lie that, oh, it was in the Wuhan, you know, uh, wet market and we never found the pangolin and the bat. And, you know, how did they get, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still just very disappointed that three years later, we have not had a full accounting of that. I know that the United Nations, I know that the World Health Organization were, you know, playing, you know, uh, you know, basically, you know, covering up uh, the fact that this happened because of, you know, their, insane genetically modifying you know uh viruses so it's just so disappointing that he got away with this and donnie i mean just everything he says about masks what a what a you know what liar i'm well we got another almost video. It. but but <laughs> you know i i wrote about this recently and dr fauci is just so full of you know what because on what was it i think it was like uh February 21st or something, he sent an email to a colleague, and this is from a Freedom of Information Act, saying masks don't do anything, don't worry about anything, you're going to like, because the uh, the person had asked him, hey, I'm traveling to this place, you know, should I be worried? And he was like, no, you have nothing to worry about, masks are worthless, you're, you know, you're a healthy adult, you've got nothing, to, you know, to worry about. So Dr. Fauci lied, and I, I, I have my personal uh reasons why i think he lied i think it was a lot of political stuff but um the fact that he's even on cnn and people are taking him seriously at this point just irks me to no end dr yeah. Fauci should just be like he should be a laughing stock you know that would be that would be ideal um yeah I, I laugh out of sadness when I see him on CNN to this day. But uh, Joe Biden, shifting gears a little bit, Joe Biden says he's going to ask Congress for funding to develop a new COVID vaccine, one in which he will recommend everybody take. And I think recommend should be the the key word here. Um, you know, I think when it comes to when it comes to public policy like this, recommend quickly turns into an offer that you can't refuse. So, yeah, when he says recommend, mm, take that with a grain of salt. And as we have seen from our years of COVID, the vaccine didn't live up to the claims that they were originally pitching it with. Don't call uh, it a vaccine. It's not a vaccine. How, you see how Don't call it a vaccine. A Don't call it a vaccine. <laughs> they changed va- the definition. They changed the definition of vaccine. It's, uh, so it's, it's, a, vaccine. it's a treatment that they kind of hope works. And yeah, I'm going know, by that. 2023 standards, not your archaic 2019 standards, Chris. The way Chris is going on, going on, I can't believe you were worried about what I say. I mean, I know. I know. I'm sorry, but when it comes to COVID and and the fact that, you know, that that almost ruined, you know, society. And 
being a former teacher, you know, I understand how much this, this uh, you know, ruined the lives of so many millions of students across this country, you know, and, and how it tore families apart, how just the ramifications and the fallout from COVID-19 we're going to experience for decades to come. This is not a, oh, okay, the, the lockdowns are done, you know, we're, we're out of the clear now. No way. This is having a continued, uh, you know, impact on a teenager's mental health, uh, people's just... Uh, it's it, it's so maddening. Well, well, it, what it's done, Chris, you know, among a lot of things that it's done that is bad and sick for society is that it has convinced healthy people that they're the problem. This is the first pandemic in mm -hmm. history where we quarantined the healthy and kept mm -hmm. people away from each other and made healthy people who are not sick wear masks. Uh, it's it's insane. But now apparently that is so ingrained into our into our culture that people that they actually think people will go along with it again. I mean, I'll, I'll take an even uh, more conspiratorial stance, Donnie. Oh, How about this? I think, I think that, that to some degree they wanted it to be as bad as possible because you know what? They knew early on that being outside, exercising, eating healthy food, those were, those were things that could actually, you know, do something to prevent COVID-19 from having a very, you know, negative impact on people. However, they closed down the gyms. They didn't allow people to go outside. They didn't allow people to run outside. In, in, you know, in California, they didn't even allow people to go like windsurfing. So that just shows me that they were trying to use this as a political cudgel to, to do whatever they wanted to do. I have my thoughts as to what those things were, but I will let our viewers and listeners determine that for themselves. <laughs> Yes. Um, right. I, I love all of your guys' opinions, YouTube. They're opinions. They're ideas. Don't shut us down for talking. This is this is a it's a core thing of America. You know, we have to be able to talk, even if they are conspiracies. I love conspiracies. You know, I run with the best of them when it comes to conspiracies. What's not a conspiracy is that uh, even our first lady, Jill Biden, who surely has been double vaxxed and triple boosted, got COVID recently, potentially infecting our dear beloved president. Luckily, we have some clarification on the matter from our very competent White House press secretary. Uh, we have a clip here that, uh, that uh, Jim, you put together. So why don't we go ahead and play the clip and then you can kind of walk us through it, uh, either as it goes or at the very end. Oh, oh, oh. There will be an updated vaccine September, mid-September, I believe. So uh, we know right. that, as you all know, vaccinations against COVID-19 remains the safest protection for avoiding hospitalization, long-term health outcomes, and death, which is why we are we are going to be encouraging uh, Americans to stay up to date on their vaccines. President Biden tested negative last night for COVID-19 and tested negative again today. He's not experiencing any symptoms. As far as the steps he is taking since the president was with the first lady yesterday, he will be masking while indoors and around people in alignment with CDC guidance. And he, as as has been the practice in the past, the president will remove his mask when sufficiently distanced from others indoors and while outside on, as well. Man. A few moments later. And here's Biden now. Uh, he, he's not wearing a mask. At, the, at a ceremony, giving the Medal of Honor to an 81-year-old hero. His face was about four inches away from the guy's mouth and nose for about five minutes. Um, again, this is a COVID-exposed president we have here. Um, and there's nobody in this room with people clapping for this great American hero, Larry Taylor. Nobody in the room is wearing a mask. Right. Nobody. How about, how about the fact that... the benefit of our audio only listening. 
How about the fact that the president of the United States didn't even stay for the ceremony because he has no clue what's going on and just started just walking Ladies through the press gentlemen. corps. And you can Please see if you yeah, looked closely at the reaction that people were like, what is he doing Where's right he going? now? Yeah. yeah, but you know that's just you know par for the course for uh, you know President Doofus. So. Yeah, the uh, the press secretary says that he's not showing any symptoms. Uh, she should clarify and say any symptoms of COVID. There's symptoms <laughs> right. of other things that he is definitely suffering from, uh, which resulted in him just walking out of the room during the middle of the ceremony <laughs> during this Medal of Honor awarding thing. Uh, so yeah, it's just. God, we are just in such bizarre times, Jim. <laughs> we do, we do. I mean, you know, I'm always, I'm always trying to compare the media's reaction to these kinds of things that Biden does to how exactly, they react Gary. to everything exactly. that Trump did. Oh yeah. Um, if Trump, if Trump just hung the hung the Medal of Honor around around some old guy, and then as they're all clapping for him, walked out as if the applause is for you. If Trump did that, we would never hear the end of it. It'd be, it'd be leading all the, it'd be leading all of the news. These sorts of things Biden does on a daily basis, and it passes without mention by anybody. Um, so it was it was very disrespectful. I mean, um, maybe he just forgot. You know, he he he's often at the end of events, like looking and, and pointing, and do I go here? Do I, do I go there? Are we done? Where am I supposed to go? You know. Um, so maybe this is just another case where um, you know his minder, his handler, was not paying attention and just let him wander off. You know, you know, old grandpa. You know, sometimes he just walks away. That's 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 not yeah, good. Yeah, well, I I don't want to get too sidetracked on the uh, what's wrong with Joe no. Biden uh, right, right, right. segment here. Come we got to stick man. to COVID, our main topic. Jim, we do. There, but, but my 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 point being, just real quick, my point being that um, again, do not comply because your own president and everybody and all the elites in the media that were at that event are not complying either. Right. Um, she had just said that day that he's going to be wearing a mask to protect himself and others because this is very serious, you guys. And so he's going to be wearing a mask, and then immediately he doesn't wear a mask. Yeah, you know, somebody so check in on that guy. Own, if they're going to well, take their own advice, I'm not going to comply. Uh, Donnie, I was just going to say one one quick thing. You know, the um, the spokes, the White House, you know, press secretary is a very important position because she is the mouthpiece for the president. And I do not want to pick on Corinne Jean Pierre by any means. However, she has just gotten up there and just lied through her teeth multiple times. Uh, I remember, you know, on the July 4th weekend when they found the cocaine in the White House, how she said the Bidens were not here on Friday. They left two days ago. No, that's just completely not true. The Bidens were there that day. She then, you know, uh, a couple of days ago says, you know, President Biden's, you know, going to do all these things and he just doesn't do them. So, I mean, I know that that's not an exact comparison there, but for her to just get out there and just say things that are just, you know, fundamentally not true, it really, I think, makes the American people lose confidence in the administration. And I think that that is happening before our eyes. I think the polls are uh, clearly uh, demonstrating that. Yeah, yeah. She's a horrible liar. Who who said that in the chat there? She's a horrible liar. She needs more training. Yeah, because she needs to be a better liar. <laughs> That that's what you right. that's the skill you need to be a press secretary, uh, you know, in this day and age. You have to be a good liar. But uh, Jim, there um, there was another segment um, or another video that we that you have lined up for us that kind of reiterates that idea. Maybe this is the theme of this segment of just not learning from the past. So you prepared a clip of Fauci talking about masks and vaccines from 2021. Uh, do you mm -hmm. want to set that up, or do you want to just play it and, and talk about it afterwards? I'll, I'll set it. Andy can hit play in a second, but yeah, just to set it up, I, I found this because I wanted to find videos of of. I want, actually, what I did is I searched for. I tried to search for a video of Fauci talking about double masking, and so because it was so absurd, 
It was so absurd, but people were buying it. I mean, I, I know people who wore two masks all the time. I know people who um, would not come near me because um, I was not wearing a mask. And I just wanted to remind people of the smiling face of societal tyranny and the destruction, the smiling face that destroyed our, our lives and destroyed businesses and destroyed the way we interact with each other. So um, this is how fun and happy it was back in 2021 um, just to demand that people put a, a rag over their face. All right, go ahead and play the video. And I will About warn that mask. I've watched this like six times already. So forgive me if I'm gouging my eyes out by the end of it. Go ahead. Let's talk about this mask thing, because now the CDC says, I mean, I think I've got this right. One mask is better than zero masks. Two masks is better than one mask. But you don't have to have double masks. Is, is that right? I mean, you know, it is. In fact, so complicated. Samantha, you and I had this conversation on your show. I mean, it must have been a month or so ago because someone had said, I've seen people wear two masks. The recommendation is not that you have to wear it. What the CDC is saying that the, at minimum, wear a mask, okay? This is what they're saying. Make sure you wear a mask. So you wear a mask. Then you want it to fit better. So one of the ways you could do it, if you would like to, is put a cloth mask over, which actually here and here and here, where you could get leakage in, is much better contained. Okay. That's all they're okay. saying. One mask at least, but if you want to really be sure, get a tighter fit with a second mask. But if when grandma's vaccinated, but grandkid isn't? Yeah, then you got to be careful because grandma could still get virus in her nasopharynx, even though the vaccine is preventing her from getting physically ill. What? Even though the vaccine is preventing her from getting physically ill, she still could have virus in her nasopharynx. And that's the reason why we say until we have the overwhelming majority of people vaccinated and the level of virus is very low, when you're vaccinated, you still, it would be prudent to wear a mask for the reason that I just mentioned. Okay. Yeah, so Jim, so, that there's your there's your favorite guy talking about uh, all this all this stuff that we know is misinformation now. But again, <laughs> we're not going to learn from it. We're not going to hold anyone accountable. We're just going to go full force into the next era in the same thing. Right. Well, the stuff that Fauci was saying there, almost everything he said there was untrue. And so we see the studies that masks don't work to prevent the spread of um, you know coronaviruses or. Uh, respiratory viruses. They, they, they're not effective at it at all. Um, uh, he knew that. And he was telling people to double and triple mask. It, 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 the reason I wanted to play that video and put that together is because it, the smiling, the laughing, the glee that he seems to take of bossing people around and telling them that how they must live their lives. Telling you, we have to remember wasn't that long ago where Dr. Fauci was the one who would tell us how many people we could have over for Thanksgiving. We are not going back to that world. We are not going back to the world where a smiling face on the Today Show is, is advising um, you know, their audience to, to humiliate themselves and cover their faces with two or even three masks, because if you don't do that, grandma's in big trouble. And also, I had that little record scratch in there, because Fauci admitted, well, if grandma has the, um, uh, has the shot, she's not going to get physically ill then why are you wearing a mask? If grandma, if you give grandma COVID or something, I don't know, whatever happens, if she's not going to get physically ill, what the hell is all this for? And this is on top of both him and Biden and other giants in the media telling us that if you, if you get the shot, you won't get COVID. 
Or then it was, if you get the shot, it won't be so bad. Or if you get the shot, you won't go to the hospital. Um, all the studies show that all of that was garbage. And what, what, why this is such an important issue and why this, I think it's important for people to resist is because we have to take back control of our lives. We have to be the ones who get to make a decision about what medicines we want to take, how we want to interact to keep ourselves and our family safe, and not have enormous governmental and societal pressure make those decisions for us. If we don't take that back fully right now, as they're starting to hint that you know masks and vaccine mandates and all this stuff are coming back, if we don't fight back at that stuff, um, this might be our last chance for freedom, because I, I really thought the American people were not going to put up with this for more than a couple of weeks, especially when they said two weeks to slow the spread. When they knew that was a lie in the beginning, they always had this plan. And so I thought the American people were going to fight back then. They didn't. We cannot yeah. let this happen again. So I, I have a um, I have a new episode of Davos Watch coming up, but I got one more COVID related story that I want to talk to. It's actually two parts, but make sure you stay tuned for Davos Watch at the end of the episode here. So the last COVID related thing that I wanted to discuss kind of highlights an area in which I think the government has learned from the past in regards to COVID response. Except what they had learned is how to be more effective in enforcing lockdowns. So I have two stories that potentially illustrate this. Number one occurred over Labor Day weekend in New York, where the New York Police Department was using camera-equipped drones to surveil large gatherings, including parades and even backyard parties. So this new tactic was uh, in response to violence in past years stemming from the West Indian American Day celebrations. Apparently that's a big thing over there. I don't know. Surely uh, just this story in itself raises some red flags in regards to civil liberties. But my thoughts immediately went to the days during COVID where the government was cracking down on social gatherings. And like Jim said, telling us how many people we are allowed to have over at a house party. Remember those videos of police coming in and breaking up holiday parties because some neighbor snitched on them for having one too many people over? Well, now with this relatively new technology, we could just keep aerial surveillance and aerial tabs on everyone at all times. And just based on, I don't know, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, the heat data or whatever, like, oh, there's 12 people over there. The limit is 10. Let's make sure to crack down on them. Uh, Chris, do you have any any thoughts on this story? I know that you saw this uh, this idea of New York using drones to spy on people. What are your thoughts? Very, very scary. You know, they can use this for COVID-19. They can use this in the future for anything else that they deem it necessary to, you know, watch and track us. You know, Danny, we've talked a lot about, you know, the uh, incoming technologies and how they do allow uh, big government to easier track us and how, you know, a hundred years or so ago, the likes of Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin would just be drooling at the mouth to have these, you know, instruments at their disposal. And uh, here we are seeing in uh, Brooklyn, New York, where they seem to be extremely worried about people hosting gatherings in their backyards. However, last time I checked, Brooklyn, New York, and New York City in general had a major, major crime problem. So why, why are they diverting precious resources because last time I also checked, NYC defunded their police to a certain degree. Why are they going after, you know, suburban, you know, families cooking out and just having a good time celebrating, you know, the end of summer when those uh, precious resources would be much better used to prevent carjackings, beatings in the subway, uh, you know, rampant, you know, shoplifting in, you know, New York City stores. I mean, I could go on and on and on rapes, you know, so 
just uh, really, really good to know that they have their priorities in line. Really well, I'm pretty sure the carjackings are the car's fault now. So I think we got right. that established here in Chicago. Right. So, uh, Jim, I'll let you comment on both of these. But the other story that I wanted to bring up comes out, out of California, where a church that was previously fined over a million dollars for breaking COVID lockdown mandates a few years ago is now suing the county over the county's alleged collection of cell phone data on the congregants of the church during this period of time. Geofencing tools and other cell phone scraping tools were used to track these churchgoers without boundary, seeing who went where when, even when that means going to the confessional box or even the bathroom. The plaintiff in the case is accusing the California County of violating its congregate's privacy and constitutional rights. But just imagine how this technology could be used to track people during COVID lockdowns. Well, according to your cell phone data, it shows that you went from one residential uh, uh, location to another. This doesn't count as essential travel. You have now been deducted 50 shroot bucks. Or or, like or, or, or or climate change lockdowns. Oh, uh, you, you're you traveling too much. You're moving yeah. around too much. Any number of things. But yeah, like you know, Chris said, we, we talk about the, the new technology and all this different uh, stuff that's coming down the pike and, and this... And it just opens the door for levels of mass surveillance not even dreamed about, you know, 20, 30 years ago. It's unbelievable. But Jim, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, it reminds me, because speaking back to COVID, it reminds me of the whole idea of COVID passports. And uh, it didn't really catch on, but it sure was pushed uh, pushed pretty darn hard. Um, remember the whole contact tracing thing that if you got COVID, you basically had to call everybody who you may have encountered. And then they could trace it all back to you. I mean, it was, we lived in an absurd time. We lived in a time of absolute fear, panic, and ignorance. And again, we're not going to go back to that. But, um, you know, we talk a lot about the World Economic Forum on this, on this podcast. And talk about um, having an attitude of glee during a horrible time for the entire world. Uh, Klaus Schwab, I seem, couldn't get enough of COVID. He's like, wow, this is great. This is great. Everybody is so scared. They'll do whatever we tell them to do. We'll have all the recommendations. We have all the experts and we have um, our acolytes in all the places of government, mostly around the West. Uh, now we can just impose our will. And it's actually makes it for a really great experiment to see how much we can get away with. And surely Klaus Schwab was tickled, tickled that um, the people complied so much. He never in his wildest dreams do you think it would be so easy to control so many by spreading fear of a disease that doesn't even kill all that many people. Oh, yeah. um, so sorry, so now, they're running, so now they're running out again. So this surveillance stuff, it's like, you know, while well, they, they were kind of experimenting with some of it during during COVID. And so it, this is, again, if you watch the show Black Mirror, this is the this is some of the dystopian future that we have to look forward to. Um, and I had forgotten, Donnie, about one of the most depressing things about COVID and lockdowns and all of that were churches being shut down, right. were pastors being arrested for holding services in their own churches. You know, they weren't kidnapping people and making them worship God. They people came on their own and people got in a big trouble and, and pastors were arrested. And now they want to trace everywhere you go. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna smash my uh I'm gonna smash my cell phone with a hammer like I used to work for Hillary Clinton if uh this stuff starts uh starts happening. Uh, I know, yeah, it's absolutely bizarre stuff, but uh, you know, that's 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 the world that we're heading towards, everybody. Doesn't it just sound fantastic? And yeah, Jim, I mean, you say that, uh, you know, Klaus Schwab was gleeful about, you know, COVID coming around. They were planning for it. This isn't a conspiracy. They had 
what was it called? Event 201 or something like that? They had like planned for all of this. Uh, you know, wow, just, I thought coincidence, I was coincidence. Going coincidence. It was a coincidence. Wow. Chris, wow. no, no conspiracy. It was a coincidence. I, I thought swear. I was, you know, uh, trying to name deep water there. Oh, no, 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 no. Just a coincidence. It, it's oh, like man. we're playing a game of conspiracy leapfrog here. Everybody just keep one up for the no other. Okay, the moon landing was faked. The Titanic never sank. Um, the, the, world, the world is flat. What else? Yeah. Can I, what else can I pull out of my head here? Right. JFK actually shot Lee Harvey Oswald. JFK committed suicide, but <laughs> all right. Let's see how Lee Harvey Oswald was. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. We've got uh, okay. we've got uh, uh, Davos Watch episode three coming up. Let's go ahead and fingers crossed that this video works. Everybody, here we go. Let's start that bumper music. Success. Welcome to episode three of Davos Watch, where we keep an eye on the global elites from Davos to the UN and all the other advocates of global fascism and totalitarian technocracy. This week, our story comes from Axios and their new article titled The Problem with America's High Home Ownership Rate. In this piece, author Felix Salmon, who is a chief financial correspondent with Axios and a participant of at least a few Davos conferences, writes, America's decades-long love affair with home ownership is holding back the economy, hobbling the Federal Reserve, and exacerbating a national housing crisis. We're stuck here now. At this point, there's just too much wealth stored in too many houses for anything, uh, for anything to meaningfully change. The U.S. system has effectively locked millions of Americans into single homes, uh, one that they can barely afford and might not even like very much. He goes through a couple of financial reasons why Americans would be better off if they just didn't own a home. And then he writes, Americans also take up millions of square feet of space that are desperately needed by a growing population. Can you just see... Like, can you just see right through all of this like I can? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, all of this is just inefficient use of land. You know, it could be better used if the if the smart people that are living at the top, you know, maybe our academic elite or anything like that, if they had their hands on the controls, they can do it better. Like, it just smells of that stuff. And it, it makes me it makes me sick, but that's a side thing. So according to Felix here, this also, is you a really think, Donnie. Yeah, this is a deeply inefficient distribution of where people live. Wow, maybe I've read too many case studies about socialism countries, but this is starting to look like a couple of uh, maybe Cambodia or something like that, this rhetoric. But again, that's aside from uh, from this point. So he also throws in some lines about how the market is illiquid and that home ownership leads to people being more likely to be opposed to development in their area as it might impact the value of their house and other stories that I've seen <laughs> in a number of articles that touch on this subject. But like with uh, my previous segment on the agricultural industry that we did last week, this boils down to the idea that if you just let the elites be in charge and in this case, give up your ownership, uh, that the collective will be much better off and much happier. So obviously this article caught my attention because it fits in perfectly with a now infamous article once published by the World Economic Forum titled, Welcome to 2030, I Own Nothing, Have No Privacy, and Life Has Never Been Better. In this article, originally produced, uh, published in 2016, but since removed, 
Author Ida Aachen, a Danish politician and member of the Social Democrats political party, described a world of the future where people didn't own anything. Uh, everything from housing and transportation to clothes and appliances were all changed into services where people just rented access to these goods or services. Imagine the Netflix model of watching media, but applied to everything. You don't own the media. You just pay a monthly fee for the privilege of accessing that media. And you might instinctively understand the problems associated with this model. But before I lay out any of those, I want to cover a couple of things of context. So first off, this is a narrative that the World Economic Forum, their associates, and others have been pushing for a while. This uh, Axios article is not a unique thing. I've come across a whole bunch of articles like this. There is one recently, uh, maybe, a, maybe a year or so, by Carl Smith, wrote a piece in Bloomberg titled, America Should Become a Nation of Renters. Shane Phillips wrote in The Atlantic, Renting is terrible. Owning is worse. And the World Economic Forum has many articles about home rentals, aside from the In the Future You'll Own Nothing article. Also, they have a number of articles supporting the idea of shared economies. One article we covered on this podcast um, was about uh, a proposed increase in car sharing as a way to get fewer cars on the road. So there's a ton of material out on this. I'm just not going to list off every single thing. And now you might think, practically speaking, this is an infeasible idea. I think even Felix mentions this, that the, you know, all of this is kind of locked into place. What, what can we do? Uh, you know, what are we going to do? Outlaw owning a home? Yeah, good luck with that. But that brings me to the next point that I want to make, is that we are already seeing signs of this. Uh, we're already seeing signs that we're moving towards a rentership society. Um, and, and this all kind of started in... 2011, when the housing market was at its lows after the Great Recession, and there was a disturbing trend of corporations purchasing single-family homes in mass and turning them into rental properties. And this trend was seemingly kicked off by a single report released by Morgan Stanley that uh, that is an official partner, by the way, official partner of the World Economic Forum. The report, in part, outlined a shift in attitudes towards a rentership society the report forecasted quote a surge in the number of renters and a potentially massive opportunity for investors to convert a glut of repossessed homes into rental properties so prior to this report prior to 2011 the idea of corporate landlords owning massive amounts of rental homes was just not a thing wasn't a thing. Maybe there was a couple of uh, uh, companies out there that owned a, a bunch of homes in an area or something like that. But this large scale, massive corporations owning thousands of homes was just not a thing. So this is a trend that's only over uh, about a decade old, but it's starting to spread far and wide. So corporations like Blackstone, not to be confused with BlackRock, uh, and other investment corporations began pouring billions of dollars into snatching up as many homes as they could get their hands on. We're talking about tens of thousands of homes being purchased by corporations and turned into rentals. And we have some quotes where some of these corporations are dreaming about how one day their corporation is going to own properties in the millions so that they can turn it into rentals for everybody. So then what happens if the World Economic Forum allied corporations buy up as many homes as possible? And sometimes in certain cases, especially in like, uh, I think Tampa Bay area was the one that was hardest hit by this trend. 
that a, a house would go up on the market within minutes. These corporations would use an algorithm and just snatch it right up. So what would happen if we're stuck in a system, we're stuck in a country where renting from a corporation is like the only way to find shelter? Well, there are two major things in my estimation. One is a very important thing. We're talking about financial ramifications. A house will be the biggest purchase and investment of many Americans' lives. General house appreciation um, uh, has and will provide valuable, valuable equity and retirement nest eggs for millions of Americans. So in a world where we just rent, all of that, all of those benefits are just you know thrown out the window. But possibly more importantly is the liberty issue. So great freedom comes along with owning a home. In general, it's your home. It's your property. You're free to do with it what you want. This freedom disappears when somebody else owns it. A good rule to remember when discussing any of these services that, uh, that might replace ownership from media and streaming services to cars and Uber or homes and rentals is that when you don't own something, somebody else does and they get to make the rules. So if a landlord doesn't want you to own a pet, it's their house. They make the rules. And this goes for a whole bunch of other restrictions. There's restrictions on rental properties for smoking, uh, hosting parties, in some case, even drinking alcohol. Landlords are given a lot of leeway when it comes to restricting certain things that their uh, tenants can do on their properties. Now, this isn't necessarily a big issue when it comes to a free market, because if Bob, the landlord, doesn't want you to have a dog in his, in his property. Well, you just go find a different landlord that doesn't enforce such a restriction. It's when this housing is controlled by a small number of big corporations where this becomes a huge threat, especially when those small number of big corporations are adhering to a credit system like, I don't know, ESG. Under this system, massive amounts of control are forfeited to corporations and the ruling elite that construct these ESG rules. And like I've said before in regards to ESG, all of these rules are fluid and subjective. While today they might be used to mandate green homes or low-flow water-efficient toilets and showers in the, your place of residence, tomorrow they could be used to restrict you from, I don't know, possessing a firearm in your residence. And this isn't a constitutional matter we're talking about, because in the future where you own nothing and these ESG-compliant corporations own everything, it doesn't matter what the Constitution says. It's the Davos elite that are making these ESG rules, not you. So and and by the way, that idea of uh, a landlord telling you that they can't uh, you can't own a or possess a firearm while you're in their residence. That is very legal in, I think, at least 48 states in the country. So that is a, not a total, you know, a straw man there by by any means. So like I said last time, and we'll say at the end of each one of these segments, these plans and organizations are incredibly influential and well-connected. And oftentimes the things that they do and say go largely ignored and they go ignored at our own peril, which is why I'm doing Davos Watch every week. I intend to shine a light on some element of the global elites, and I hope you stay tuned so that you can stay informed. Forget it, Donnie. You're out of your element. Chris, I want to go to you first on this. What do you think about this future where we don't own anything when it comes to housing? And just the idea that someone would have the gall of uh, of releasing an article on Axios talking about how great it would be for us to get rid of our home ownership. It just seems unbelievable to me. All right. I'm going to go way back in time here. 
Okay. Are we going to be able to go a little bit over time here? <laughs> We're already over time. Let's okay. do it. Okay. Okay. So 1970s uh, Community Reinvestment Act was passed under Jimmy Carter. Okay. Community Reinvestment Act basically told banks, you have to provide loans to people who do not exactly have great credit scores because in America, you know, basically, you know, housing, what, you know, is the American dream and we want to um, incentivize housing. Fast forward, you know, 30 years later, uh, the banks were forced to give so much, uh, you know, so many, um, uh, you know, terrible loans to people that what happened? It led to the, you know, the housing crisis of 2008, 2009. Uh, after that happened, yeah, you had a bunch of people that, you know, were forced out of their homes and foreclosures were, you know, very, very uh, prevalent across the country. The, uh, the banks, the big banks, like you said, Morgan Stanley and some of the others, they did have the... Um, the uh, the funds, the cash to go in there and swoop those up at bargain costs. OK, so I mean, I think that that is necessary to kind of like understand, like how we got to that point. And I also think that it's very important to uh, take into account that uh, the past couple of years, homeownership is really, really unaffordable because the interest rates are so high because of the you know inflation and all the other like economic, uh, you know, uh, problems that we're experiencing. So I think that this is a like a multifaceted problem. I don't think there's an easy solution to this. I agree with you that um, I think the forces, you know, at large want to, be, uh, you know, want want to be able to leverage their power to, uh, you know, to hold people under their thumb so that they, you know, have to abide by their rules. And I agree with you that home ownership is a great thing because it, uh, you know, you've got skin in the game, and uh, home ownership is also great because that, you know promotes, you know, communities and promotes, uh, you know, neighborhoods. And, you know, I was lucky enough to grow up in a uh, small town uh, north of Chicago and I lived in, you know, a home and, you know, we had, you know, friends and family and neighbors and we all came together and, you know, did great things. And, you know, we had a, you know, charmed life. However, I think, you know, if people are going to live in a constant reshuffling of the deck where they're constantly moving and they're constantly renting, you're not going to have that sort of, um, you know, like solid foundation in uh, in communities, cities, and just everywhere across the country. So I think that this has, you know, cultural, uh, you know, ramifications. Obviously, it's got economic ramifications. And Donnie, I just think, you know, the commonality of everything that we've discussed in this podcast and that we discuss in most of our podcasts is control. And it's about control. It's about forcing you to wear a mask. It's about, you know, forcing you to... Uh, you know, to live under the dictates of these, you know, uh, of, of, you know, of these, you know, giant corporations and the rules that they set forth. And I think that that is just having a very deleterious effect on the fabric of our nation. So I, I, I think this is just a very, you know, insidious uh, problem that goes far beyond whether or not you own a home or not, because I think that it just strikes at the heart of the American dream, which is to go and, you know, own a home and for the next generation to be better off than their parents. Sadly, in my family, my parents have five kids. Only one of us owns a home. And that's because, you know, it's so unaffordable for so many, you know, people in, in my, you know, cohort. You know, Jim, I'm sure that you can attest to this, that, you know, people in their, you know, like 20s and 30s, it's just very difficult for them to get ahead these days. So I think this is just part and parcel to the, you know, overall, you know, broad swath problem that we're facing, you know, across the country as a whole.
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm going to be 53 years old here very soon. Uh, for most of my life, I have uh, rented. I was born in New York City, and of course, we had a rented apartment. Um, and then my family owned homes in Dayton, Ohio, and then Pittsburgh. Uh, but for the most of my life, I was a renter. It's only relatively recently that um, you know we purchased our own home. And when you've rented for a long time, um, and then you become a homeowner, you immediately notice a very big difference. Your level of mental uh, stability increases. Your sense of safety increases tremendously. Mm -hmm. You own where you live. You make the rules, unless you live in a, in a place with a homeowner association uh, that's pretty restrictive. I don't, so I'm, I'm fortunate in that way. But you know, you get to you get to rule the way you live. You're you're not dependent. Basically, there's always a sense of anxiety that the landlord will uh, raise the rent, of course, or he'll sell the property and somebody new will double the rent, or uh, suddenly he'll say you can't have pets, or he's not taking care of the property the right way and, and you're not allowed to do anything about it. I mean, there's that all of those things are, are part of renting that are not great. And I, this Axios, you know, and homeownership is completely different because if your home uh, is broken, if something's broken, believe me, I have to fix a lot of things around here, but I enjoy it. You can do it and you do it yourself. And so that sense of, of ownership and autonomy, it really, it's not called the American dream for nothing. The American dream is freedom. And there's really no more sense of, of, of a sense of living free in America more than owning your own home. And so that's why it was an aspiration for generations and still is, should be an aspiration. And if interest rates were a little lower, um, maybe the younger generations could, could get a little bit ahead. But look, you know, you shouldn't expect to, with rare exceptions, you shouldn't expect to buy a home until you are basically middle-aged. <laughs> that's when you start earning enough money to be able to afford it, uh, you know, in general. I, I know that from my own, you know, I'm Gen X. I know that from my own generation. Most of the, my friends uh, didn't own their own home until they were in their 40s. So, um, you know, it's tough, but it's, it's, it's a dream worth, worth aspiring for. But this Axios, when you were reading this, uh, Donnie, this Axios story just kind of really triggered me. <laughs> I thought, who the hell do you think you are? <laughs> this is basically what are you reading this stuff? It's like, you know, the results is deeply, a deeply inefficient distribution of where people live. Says who? Go to hell. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'll live where I want. People live where they want to live. Right. And if you don't think that's efficiently distributed, you can saw it off. That's not your concern. Why don't one of these busybodies, these people from journalism to the WEF to our own federal government, for crying out loud, just mind their own damn business. You know, stop trying to reorder society in this theory, in this theory driven way that people would be happier if they were renting. No, people are easier to control when they're renting. Yeah. You know, they say you will own nothing and be happy. You know, you may own nothing, but somebody owns that. Exactly. Somebody owns the house you're living in. Somebody owns the car you're you're um, you're riding in. Uh, so this whole idea of just kind of glorifying the idea of giving up all of your autonomy to the state, to something above you uh, is insidious and people need to reject it. I hope they're rejecting it. Um, I would have thought these ideas would have been so wacky and outside the mainstream that they would only be whispered in the dark corners of some library at a liberal college in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Instead, now they're, they're out there in the front and in the news and in Axios trying right. to convince people 
to be miserable and instead of pursuing their own happiness. Which is uh, on on stage at Davos, that's where these ideas are being spouted. And I'm yeah. pretty sure that Felix wrote this article because he's trying to secure a ticket for next year's Davos. That's that's just my pure speculation there. And you know, as as the only renter among us three, I can also tell you that you know rental rates are going through the roof, and um, you know you you're unable to build long term wealth. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because I'm because I'm I'm spending so much of my disposable income just trying to meet you know my rent, which just you know in in the Chicago suburbs, I can tell you, and I'm sure you both know that the the rent is just out of control right now, and especially in you know urban areas, New York. Chicago, I've got some friends who are running downtown right now and it's just, it's crazy. So I think, Donnie, this is another way of just kind of keeping us in that, you know, um, in, in that position where we're just constantly treading water. We can't get ahead. We can't actually, you know, build up wealth, buy a home and pursue the American dream because we're just barely able to get by, just barely able to, you know, buy our groceries. And, uh, you know, the stats show it. 60% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Two thirds don't have, you know, $250 for a surprise, you know, um, bill. And I think this is just all part of that. You know, I think that, you know, growing up, it was so much easier for the middle class to get ahead. And nowadays, and I think a lot of it is due to, you know, big government policies that, you know, it's just, it's, they're, they're making it almost impossible for people of my, you know, my generation, Donnie, you know, our generation to really, uh, you know, get ahead and be, you know, in a, in a position better off than our parents were in. And that's a really sad state of affairs. I think that also leads to less kids and just kind of a general sense of disillusionment. And, you know, and it's like, why, you know, why? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, th that that's just a really sad state of affairs. My, my, my mom's dad came from Germany with not a penny in his pocket and was able to, you know, own a home because, you know, back then it was, it, it, if, you know, if you were willing to work hard and save some money, you could easily afford a home. Nowadays, that just does not exist in its wild, in your wildest imagination. Yeah, the macro trends seemingly are pushing us towards a uh, in the future you'll own nothing trajectory. And I, I might do a whole bunch of these because housing is one. I could do one on particular uh, on, on media and content. I already mentioned the Netflix thing, but there are some mm -hmm. very interesting ramifications about that. Cars. A whole bunch of different stuff, which is all nicely outlined in this beautiful book, Dark Future. Chapter five is in the future. You'll own nothing. So a lot of great information in that one if you haven't picked up this book yet. But uh, while I was doing that Davos watch segment, we did get a super chat from I'm going to butcher this name pronunciation here. Anarchy. Give me a thumbs up if that's the way that you pronounce it. $20 super chat saying thank you for continuing to shed a light. I'm willing COVID to bet it's Annika. Annika. That's what I'm betting. Okay, well, is is am I right or is Chris right? We need to keep poking holes in the narrative. Your show is a treasure. Thank you, Anna Key. That's how I think. Annika, it's it. going to be Annika. <laughs> I'm sticking you. with it. I'm sticking with it. All right, but uh, I want to thank everyone for tuning into this episode of In the Tank. And uh, oh, you're right. All right, Annika. Right. See. All right, fine. You're the, you're the worst at names anyway. You guys, I am the well worst known. at names. But uh, join us every week for a new episode of the In The Tank podcast. If you like our show, please subscribe. Write a review for us on iTunes, especially if you're an audio-only listener there. And if you are an audio-only listener, you can catch us on Thursdays at noon Central Time, where we are streaming this live on Facebook and Rumble and Twitter and YouTube. And uh, you can join the conversation, throw your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. 
buy. Like I said, that super chat functionality is enabled if you want to support the show that way. But just hitting that like button, subscribing, sharing this content, or leaving a comment under the video all helps break through this big tech algorithms and prevent content like this from being shown to more people. Um, also, if you'd like, you can follow us on Twitter at In the Tank Pod, or you can send us your comments and suggestions to the show by emailing us at In the Tank Podcast at gmail.com. Jim Lakely, where can the fine people find you? At Jay Lakely on Twitter, at Heartland Inst on Twitter, and always visit heartland.org. Fantastic. Chris Talgo, what do you have to pitch today? Uh, stopinsocialism.com. Got you know really great content up there, and uh, heartland.org. Uh, like I said last week, we're trying to you know, fill the opinion page with all the great op-eds that our writers, you know, produce on a weekly basis. All right. Thank you, Annika. And thank you to everyone else. Join us next week. We'll talk to you next time.